Again, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Welcome back as we continue in season number three. My name is Jeffrey Kwame. I am the host of this podcast and the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome to this episode of Scope of Practice. When we look at the history of treatment for substance use disorders here in our country over the past century or so, what we see is clear. The post-prohibition development of Alcoholics Anonymous and ultimately the proliferation of other 12-step fellowships, followed by the Minnesota model of treatment, which of course is 12-step based and according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, still remains a large part of about 72% of all treatment programs today. Getting involved into the disease model following in the 60s and in, in 1997, United's declaration that addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disease. This has led to the development and use of evidence-based practices to treat SUDs, and evidence-based practices have been hailed as a panacea for the field. However, evidence-based practices have obvious concerns, limitations based on populations, environment, strict adherence to protocols, inability to account for concerns not related to the identified problem, and most importantly, what if the measurable outcome is not identified by that client as a goal? It has been said that the best use of EBPs is really in policy creation. The field is often reluctant, if not taken with abject rejection of new ideas and technology. Emerging ideas, such as the possibility that SUDs may be attachment or learning disorders, are dismissed without exploration, and harm reduction is either rejected on its face or seen only as a step towards our own definition of recovery, instead of truly meeting a person where they're at and providing a life-saving service. Speaking of emergency, uh, emerging technology and truly meeting people where they're at, stay tuned. Dr. Evelyn Higgins has been a physical and functional medicine doctor for 34 years in private clinical practice. She has achieved diplomat status within the American College of Addictionology and Compulsive Disorders, as well as diplomat status within the American Board of Disability. Dr. Higgins is certified in manipulation under anesthesia. She created and implemented budgets and financial preparations as a multidisciplinary medical facility consultant, in addition to consulting for integrated physicians in documentation, compliance, and creation of medical policy. Proficient in examination, diagnosis, and treatment of patients, she has performed independent medical and chiropractic exams, peer reviews, and disability ratings. Dr. Higgins is the chief executive officer and co-founder of Wired for Addiction, as well as the founder of the Neurotransmitter Reset Program, a 2021 nominee for Modern Healthcare's Top 25 innovation Innovators in Healthcare. She is also the author and host of a nationally syndicated health and wellness radio show. Dr. Higgins is an international keynote speaker as well, and it is absolutely my pleasure to welcome to the, her to the program. Dr. Higgins, nice to have you. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's my pleasure to be here. My honor. Just kind of to start out, given your significant education and experience in this field, do you have any thoughts on why sectors of this field are often loath to look po uh, positively on things that take us away from the conventional wisdom that we often hold so dearly? Do you mean the industry as a whole? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I would say it's it's really interesting you bring that up as the first question, Jeffrey, because it's the only part of healthcare that I can see that is not run systematically. Everybody's kind of got their own version 
of what needs to be done with substance use disorders. And I think therein lies a large part of the problem of the result because we haven't created a model to say step one, step two, step three, and go through the process. I can go to different facilities and some of them are run like healthcare facilities. Others are run like, you know, mom and pop gas station. And, you know, if you want to check in, check in. If you want to check out, check out. And I think that's to the harm of the individuals, the clients or the patients. You know, over the years, and when the field started out, it was a model. And it was a model that was inefficient and didn't work. It was you go to detox, whether you needed it or not. Then maybe you go to a 28-day program and then either a partial outpatient, a partial hospitalization or outpatient, and then to a 12-step facilitation meeting. And we people that hung with it and it worked for it worked really well, but it doesn't work for most folks. So I know that we've been trying to stay away from this like a model because everybody has the next great idea. And it's really the same idea getting recycled over and over again. And still, uh, mm-hmm. outcomes aren't really existing good outcomes. Right, right, right. You you opened up with talking about evidence-based and so much of this, I'm not really sure where the evidence is because I'm not seeing data. I'm not seeing biomarkers. I see someone's vocabulary as a way of diagnosing them. And what if the way I express myself in choice of words is different than you or different than my provider? How do we wind up with everybody on the same page as to what this person's needs are? As I referenced in the introduction, you know, I want to jump right into truly meeting people where they're at. Um, So tell me, if you can, what is genetic guided treatment of SUDs and mental health conditions? And can you give us a sort of history of it from its genesis until where we're at right now? Sure. So that's how we treat genetic guided treatment. And we look at genes, we look at neurotransmitters, we look at hormones that play a large role in our mental health and in the treatment of substance use disorders. We look at something called genetic SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphism, which means an error in genetic coding, which is going to wind up having different behaviors as an outcome. So we look at all of that to come up with what we use as our system. And kind of the way it came about, Jeffrey, was uh, just shy of 30 years ago, I did a CAP program. And I did it because I was practicing in a rural area of Georgia where we had no resources whatsoever. And it was somewhat personal to me in that I had married a man who was an alcoholic and had a child. And I said, how much of this is going to be genetics? How much is this nature versus nurture? And I need to know everything that I can know about this. So that was almost, as I said, almost 30 years ago, did the CAP program. Decided three, four years ago to do a diplomate in it as I was seeing this opioid problem just taking over. So I get back into the formal teachings and what I'm hearing is the same thing that was taught 30 years ago. And I'm saying so much has changed. Technology has evolved, yet we're doing the same exact thing you know, the, the Albert Einstein definition of insanity, doing the same same thing over and over again, yet expecting a different result. And that's what we were doing. I'm like, we've come so far in other aspects. Why haven't we tried to move the needle in this area? 
And that became my thing. That became my quest. And I said, how significant are single nucleotide polymorphisms a part of this? 16 years ago, I had started working with neurotransmitters and hormones and said, you know, all of this together is how the brain works. So if we can figure out using biomarkers, which we do in our panels, we look at 85 biomarkers from neuropsych, neurotransmitters, to methylation, to inflammation, to immune, autoimmune, to autophagy, to detoxification. And so much of this is brand new. The technology to be able to look at this only came about in the tail end of 2014 and the beginning of 2015, the technology to do this. 2017, Japanese physician won the Nobel Prize for discovering the autophagy situation, which is essentially the garbage man of our genes. Do we let all this toxic junk stay in us or do we push it out? So all this is really, really new. Now throw COVID into the mix. And that's what the world's been talking about for three years straight, mm -hmm. right? You can't, you can't turn on any form of uh, media printer or, or TV or radio without hearing something about COVID that day. So that's what we were stuck. And I started to look at all this and said, you know, there's so much here. I know for 16 years how that we can effectively change neurotransmitters and hormones if we look at the biochemical pathways and support those pathways. So doesn't it make sense to look at all of these other parts that could be related to substance use? So that's okay. kind of the evolution. You know, it's amazing to me that we as a field kind of struggle to, to kind of look at it because we see it used in other medical practices and with good success and say, man, that's a great way. Cancer, right. for example, they, you know, you can test and see how your body will best respond to certain treatments and design a treatment plan that's going to fit what your genetics say is best for you. So right. we'll look at that when we talk cancer. That's a great idea. If I ever get cancer, I want to make sure I do that. But right. here it's, no, we're going to do the same old thing because I know better because I've gotten clean and sober and my way works. And, and all of those things, um, although there are, are, obviously those are pockets, but we do see people that are just staunch against something that can be beneficial or even learning about it. Right, right. And as we, we both know that this is a biopsychosocial problem. So there's so many layers to it. It's so complex, which is the reason we're having this conversation, right? It's like it is such a complex disease, but shouldn't we be open minded to hearing all the different parts? Because we need every tool in our toolbox right. to meet exactly what you said, meet that person where they're at from the starting point. What may work for John may not work for Mary. They can't resonate with that. But if we can do the physiological part, because you can, you know, I could have somebody come in and not tell me anything. Say, let's see if she really knows what she's doing. Tell me a completely different story using words. I get back their labs and I say, this is what's going on with you. This is who you are. This is your behavior. And they're like, whoa, right? Because that part's factual. It's yeah. factual. And we can, you know, with the little traumas in our life, the big traumas in our life, we can distort our own stories. We create our own reality, what it is to us, right? But this yeah. part of it should be the layer that's like, guys, here's the layer that we have that's scientifically driven. So starting with biomarkers seems like the most obvious place. Even when I find out that treatment centers or even hospitals are not employing the use of pharmacogenomic testing, to me, that's such a loss 
Because how many times with someone with an underlying mental health condition do we hear, let's try this, I tried that, I did this for this long, I did it for that long, we doubled it, we removed it, we tried to compound it using it with something else. When we can get a DNA sample on somebody as as easy as a buccal swab and know which drugs are going to be safe for them, which drugs are going to be, pharmaceutical drugs are going to be used with caution and which are going to be totally a stop, no go. This is going to have adverse effects for you. That should be step one. I worked at an OTP for for several years and the medical director there said, we do labs for a reason such as liver function tests, not just for my use, but for yours. So he would talk to us about what we would look for with somebody. And one of the things that used to amuse me all the time is somebody who was drinking chronically, but would not blow numbers on the the breathalyzer so we could medicate them in that morning would say, well, I'm not drinking. And I'd look at the liver function and say, really? Yeah. Like that. And it was all the simple, the GG, you know, the GGTP level. Yep. And it, the doc saying that is a great, it's simple, but it's a great tool to, to use to gather information and say, hey, what you're telling me isn't matching up with what I'm seeing, what your body is telling me. Exactly. So I, I think that exactly. even in simple ways, it's and, fascinating. You know, yeah, absolutely. And we know that we need all the, the other parts of it as it's not to say this is the the only you know technology that should be employed. You need somebody to sit there with you and hear your story. You you need the reinforcement every day to go with a group, whatever you choose, whatever your belief system is. You need all of those things, but you also need the physiology to have a strong foundation. Yeah, I think what over the 30 years or so, 35 actually, that I've been in this field, what I see is we tend to react to something rather than respond. We'll see new information and we'll react and we'll think of it as, well, they're saying this is the only thing that you have to do. We're saying, no, this is part of a comprehensive care plan that includes the psychosocial. Right. This is the bio piece that that we're looking at. I think that that's important. Absolutely. From a continuum of care standpoint, someone leaves a facility. Now what? Go out, make sure you get yourself in a program, get in an AA, whatever it is that works for you. But what are we going to do to support the physiology? You know, it's just all part of it. It's not saying this is the it. This is part of the it for the individual. I think the only time that that I've seen the biology really discussed is in where someone's using a medication to support their recovery. And it usually comes from a residential place calling whoever the provider is, the medical provider saying, so-and-so is falling asleep in group. Their methadone must be too high. They're taking too much, you know, buprenorphine. Instead of looking at how are they sleeping, are there issues that are affecting their sleep, are there bio, you know, are there environmental issues that are called other biological issues that are affecting their sleep, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, it's always looking for the, yep. you know, the lowest hanging fruit. Exactly. Um, just kind of help us understand how that genetic makeup is identified um, through testing. What are some of the other, the simpler to understand biomarkers that you look at and how do they relate to care? Okay. So let's just use there's one, the cert gene in the single nucleotide polymorphism category of this. If someone had, okay, so you can have either a heterozygous result or a homo, homozygous result or no clinical abnormality, 
So we're, we're, we're hoping for the no clinical abnormality, right? Heterozygous means one of the two genes is affected. Homozygous means both of the pair are affected. Okay. So someone with this SIR gene, if they have a hetero homo, they have a very small likelihood of an SSRI working for them. That's so easy to identify. How many people I see that have been on SSRIs for 10, 15 years, their serotonin is still in the tank. It's done nothing because genetically they didn't have the ability to break down and utilize that serotonin. So that SSRI wasn't going to do anything. So herein lies the compounding effect of the pharmacogenomics, the genetic testing to see what's the best comprehensive plan for this individual. What happens if someone's been on an SSRI that long? The human nature factor is you don't care. You're not trying. Now this person starts owning this stuff, which isn't true. And, you know, I'll throw in the towel. I'll give up. I'm just a lost cause, you know, all those kind of things. And if you look at the human element to this, we're really doing somebody a disservice if we make them believe that they just really don't care. And I see that in, in advertisements because the pharmaceutical industry has such a strong voice. They'll say, right. well, add this to your SSRI, whatever the medication may be, and this will help. And I, I look at those and I wonder what it's doing. Is it is it look attacking the problem from a different perspective or is it just kind of a booster for the SSRI that's going to have the same effect that it's it's like increasing the dose? And I, and I, not being a medical person, I have no idea, but it fascinates me. Right. In theory, they're thinking it's going to be a booster. But if someone has a genetic variant in that gene, they're not going to boost a thing. And this is not a difficult thing to understand or to uh, look at and learn about somebody. Right. This is something that a, a medical provider should be able to do. Absolutely. Yes. I'd like to talk about implementation of uh, genetic um, guided treatment. Is there, when you're working with a specific organization and on your website, there are certain things that you see that who uses it and, and that are your partners, um, including the College of Addictionology with somebody I know, Dr. Jay Holder, who I okay. know from, from our work with the ICNRC. Um, yep. But are there uh, specific steps or plans that you talk with organizations about implementation? Is it a difficult process for them? No, it's not at all. Actually, it's very, very simple. And we typically start with educating them so they know how this works, what they would be looking for with their clients or patients. For example, we have an NASW course coming out in the fall, an ADAC course coming out, and it's going to be the um, science of treatment recovery. And in this, people will learn about these different aspects. Why these genes? What's the panel? And how do we order it? How simple is this to employ it in your facility or with your loved ones? And it really is that simple. It's once, and, and I always like to educate people because to me, if I don't know the answer to something, but I know the theory behind it, I have a really good working process to kind of figure out what's going on, right? And, and the goal is to have everybody be armed with, this is another tool, and this is how simple it is to start using it. We have patients literally from all over the world where we drop ship the lab panels that are necessary. We do telehealth visits so we can have patients from everywhere and it becomes that easy. Or we go into a facility, we go into a mental health hospital or we go into a, a sud treatment facility 
and the folks that want to use this process, okay, we'll be there on Tuesday. We're going to swab. We're going to get samples. We're going to take them with us. We're going to send them off to the lab. Two to three weeks later, we get back all the information. We go over what everything needs. And what I've found so many times, Jeffrey, is that once somebody understands that this is what's going on in them and part of who they are, the relief is unbelievable because they have not been counterproductive to themselves. We just haven't looked under the right rock for them. And I've had people cry. You know, all it's like this. Wow. So this isn't me just trying to be obstinate. No, this is we're all made up of something different. Right. Over seven billion people in the world. Yet we think we're going to treat everybody the same way when everybody. No two people have the same DNA. It doesn't make sense. I was going to ask about the the client and patient response to this. So you you went right there. That's fantastic. But I also get something out of that 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 just struck a chord me. I was doing a, a mental health and substance disorder event this weekend about stigma and things. And one individual says, "Hey, I don't like the word disorder. I don't see this as a disorder." I say to some, but then another person said. Well, I like the idea of it being a disorder because that didn't help me understand my suicidal behavior, mm-hmm. where it came from and how to treat it, that it wasn't just me. It was, And so, like you said, 7 billion people and everyone's different. So I think the idea of, hey, this is what's happening going on with me is it opens up a whole new world for people to understand that, hey, it's, you know, I'm not the problem. Absolutely. Right. And like you said, the self-fulfilling prophecy, when we think we're the problem, which we often do, we don't get better. Sometimes it's as simple as a little change. Yep, absolutely. Um, It's a tweak, right? And think about, you know, think about how all this evolves, right? Little kid, I was talking to somebody yesterday, eight-year-old teacher says their ADHD need to be on Ritalin. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. I said, but they're like, can there any labs for that? I said, yes. You know, phenylethylalanine is a neurotransmitter that's very relevant to ADD, ADHD focus. I said, we can measure that and then see if that's really what's necessary. The problem becomes when we start putting these labels on people, they own up to their labels. What does an eight-year-old boy do when he's told you're ADHD, you're just going to be the problem in the class every day, all day through 12th grade. And then you probably won't even go on after that. Kid's going to live up to that. That's part of human nature, right? Then what do you do? You start to say, this still, I don't feel any different. Let me start self-medicating as soon as I can. So many of these situations start with self-medicating, which initially works until it doesn't Until it does not. Right? And it's helpful for parents who... Say, well, well, the doctor had initially recommended that someone you that my child go on Ritalin or something without any biological testing to to get an idea. And they say, well, I don't want my child on that. It's very comforting when they get that information and say, oh, well, what we're looking at, that wouldn't be the best route to go right sure. now. Or I'm sorry, Correct. but based on genetic factors, yeah, this is the, the most effective way that there are Correct. options for people and options that, that we didn't even know about and can be applied to substance use and mental health treatment as well. Absolutely. And when you look at using the same example, again, the eight-year-old boy, when you look at our brains aren't fully formed till we're 27 years old and we start changing with synthetics, how our brain operates, 
that that gets into some dangerous waters, right? And I am not anti-pharmaceutical whatsoever. The problem, I think, is with that we abuse them rather than use them. They shouldn't be our first line of defense. To me, our first line of defense should be what's creating this, what's causing it. Let's look at those biochemical pathways. And there's not a single biochemical pathway in any of our bodies that's made up of a pharmaceutical. Yet we've been trained to believe that's our first line. Get, get it. And I'm not anti-pharmaceutical. I'm just saying, listen to the logic here. It doesn't make sense. Right. It's, it's the appropriate use of pharmaceuticals. I have a colleague who runs right. an organization called Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. And everyone says, oh, you're anti-prescribing of opioids. And they say, not no, we're not. Our doctors right. say use them appropriately. And that's the problem. They're not being used appropriately. They're great medications when used appropriately. They're lifesavers for people, yeah. right? And they have to be used appropriately. Like anything, it has to be used appropriately. You talked about um, kind of informing people and other implications. Are there implications for prevention? Because we also know that that's a first line of defense. Can we prevent yeah. something based on knowing what's going on with our body and then help with the non-clinical supports as well? Absolutely. Beautiful question. Thank you for bringing that up, Jeffrey, because therein lies my fantasy of how I would like to see us operate prevention, right? Um, case in point, mother, daughter, patients, mother had all the same pretty much biomarkers as the daughter. No shock there. It's genetics. So, and, and the daughter was having some significant difficulties, 16 years old. So I had the conversation with her saying, you don't have the wiggle room to play here. This is what these genes mean. This is what they do. You're always, your go-to is to see the glass half empty. You are going to be reaching outside of that to find something that's going to pacify you. Your buddies are now at the age where they're going to say, come on, let's do this. Come on. It's no big deal. Let's do this. I said, I am here to tell you, you don't have the wiggle room to do that. Because the next day when your buddies say, "Nah, that was cool, but I don't want to do it again. You're like, when are we doing it again? And that's how it begins. So the mother was nodding behind her. They were both in the appointment. And I was like, keep going, keep going. Because I know that. The mother could say that to the kid all day, every day, and the child's going to be like, yeah, mom, give me a break. But I'm saying it. I'm like, you don't have the wiggle room. And in a perfect world, that's what we do with this information. And we see situations like that all the time where a group of, I have a, a somebody that I played high school football with who went to a major school and played. It started running around with guys that were using cocaine. Well, those other guys knew how to stop and when they could. But by the time he realized it was too late. Wait. Took his career away from him and things, you know, yep. he's, he's in a yep. much better pathway now, but he didn't have that ability. Right. Right. And, and he was lost. And, and we both know this is not a moral flaw. No. Nobody says, you know what? My life's going so good today. When I wake up, I'm just going to mess it up. You know, that's not how this goes. Nobody tries to have their life be harder. It's yeah, not a moral flaw. Vegas and saying, well, I'm just going to do this until I die. People right. may get to that point, but nobody right. starts out saying, I want to be dependent upon this. I want to be an addict. Right, right. I want I want to lose my children or I don't want my children to respect me or I want to go through job after job after job, make my life more difficult. Nobody. And nobody should. Right. But it we punish people when it happens 
you know, in the field, in the language the field uses is say, oh, well, relapse is part of recovery, but we punish somebody when they relapse. And I'm firmly uh, that relapse is not part of recovery. If my blood pressure is high. My doctor doesn't look at me and say, hmm, it's just part of recovery. No problem. She says to me, hey, are you eating salt? Let's talk, let's talk about the processed food you're eating. There, she doesn't medicate me. She says, let's talk about what you're doing and let's let's make a change. Yeah, that's a good uh, doctor. Yeah, what types of outcomes are you able to measure? So we can measure the beginning place where we start, the ending place with neurotransmitters with hormones. So we can see the differences mm -hmm. in optimization with genetic SNPs, because that is your DNA. Those are the cards you're dealt when, when you're born. What we're looking at is epigenetics. And that's the expression of how those genes play out. So we're not going to change the genetic SNP. We're going to change the expression of how that gene plays and works. So we will see the symptoms change in that individual. They're saying, you know, I'm not struggling the way I was, or I am more engaged. I have my old personal and professional drive back. People are noticing, saying, hey, you're like you used to be. You're more like yourself. So it's the expression of that yeah. DNA that changes. But on the neurotransmitters and the hormones, we can see the changes. But, okay, you can see it in the testing, but it's also patient self-report saying, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. This is better. This is better. And Absolutely. to me, in terms of outcomes, that's what matters. You know, those those proximal outcomes are yep. the clients are those re that receive services getting what they want instead of some sort of false picture that we have created for them. Right, right, right. Which, which often is, do they follow our program? Right. You know, or are they sober at the time they leave instead of qual true quality of life concerns? Bingo. That's yeah. it. Is their quality of life better? Then that's a win. Oh, that's a huge win. And we yeah. forget that because we get yeah. so caught up in in lack of outcomes. I have a colleague who says, hey, I, you know, we we do a lousy job in this field of measuring outcomes. And the ones that we have measured haven't changed in since 1976. I've had 20 different styles of phones since 1976, but treatment hasn't changed. Right, right. Well, where, where I started this conversation with you. Yeah, 30 right? years ago. 30 years ago. I'm like, yeah. guys, seriously? Wow. What sectors of, of industry, what sectors of the human services industry are we seeing use this uh, model and using genetic guided treatment more than others? What do we say? Okay, great question. The, the obvious treatment facilities, treatment hospitals, whether they pre primary mental health or SUD facilities, we're seeing the law, the legal community employ this to mitigate a client's case and get them into the proper treatment rather than spending more time in jail, being incarcerated where we're not going to have a good outcome. And we know that going into it as well as employee assistant programs. COVID has really given us a huge uptick in the mental health disorders, primarily anxiety and depression. And for so many people, the way to combat that was to check out with a, whatever their, their, their substance use of mm -hmm. choice has been. So we're seeing a lot of that as well. Large corporations and small corporations coming to us saying, hey, we want to offer this as a service to our employees. I think that's amazing. And, and I can certainly see 
the value when you talk about legal to the drug court system, which is much maligned, and in some cases, rightfully so, and others not so much, but it can inform the drug courts for them to have better success and that their people become more successful because they have an idea of what's happening. Absolutely. Um, my COO is a panelist this month in Washington, D.C. at the, the annual NACID National Association Impaired Stop Impaired Driving. And this is big that policymakers now want to know what we can do to make the change. We've reached this point where they're finally ready to say, let's not admire the problem and just have another meeting to have another meeting to have another meeting. Let's actually do something. I've been to a lot of those meetings that are involved that you go to just to schedule another meeting. They're not really that fun. Right. Um, so exactly. I like that's why I asked about implementation and things, because to me, that's the important aspect. Yep. I love the behind the scenes. But what do you do yep. with it? We have um, in, in a very large city in the U.S. in negotiation for their firefighters and their first responders as a preventative rule because they've lost too many of their brothers and sisters to suicide. And they're saying this needs to be a part of what we offer. I'm smiling because serendipitously, as I we record this, when I'm done, I'm going to release a podcast that I just recorded with the director of the Firefighters Behavioral Health Alliance. Beautiful. <laughs> Where we talk about suicide and substance use disorders and the mental health struggles that these individuals, that firefighters face just based on the nature of their job. So yep. something serendipitous about this. Yep. Yep. Um, I can't let you go without talking about the value of genetic added treatment versus the use of evidence-based treatments. In terms of problem targeting um, and just overall effectiveness. So do you mean like MAT? Um, I'm like, like they'll say, well, this is the best thing to do. We're going to use... Oh, yeah, we'll use MAT, but it's going to be done in this way because the study said this worked and they try to replicate something that they can't. Or the opposite, we broadly put something into play because it worked for one population at one time and, and things like that. Right. It, I, I think we need to employ all of it. You know, the while someone is in treatment, if, if their facilities model is MAT, by all means, that's what we need to be doing. You want to get that patient to their best ability. But we cannot overlook the need to have biomarkers for this individual and know what's going to work best with them. CBT, we have to do that. Let's yeah. face it. You know, I could do panels on somebody and never interact with them. They would change, but would we get the best outcome? No. People want to know that they matter, that somebody wants to hear what they have to say, that they're important enough for their story to actually get to take up time and say, these were my little traumas, these were my big traumas, and I need somebody to really believe in me to move past that. It's all that. And that's the complexity yeah. of what we're talking about, right? That's, that's what makes this so difficult. But it can be so difficult and so rewarding. When you see an individual's life completely turn around, and not just that one individual, but everybody in their world benefits, it's a domino game, yeah. and everybody benefits, 
that's that's how we make changes. Like what why you do what you do, sharing this information. That's how we make changes. Going to the grassroots and saying, here's what it is, guys. Let's let's start all talking about it. The first question I think with when anyone comes in the door for any sort of treatment is what do you want to get out of being here? What's right. your goal? Not what right. not mine. But, but what right. do you see happening? Right. And then using the biomarkers and looking at things saying we can help you get there right. by addressing these things as well as all right. of the other services that are provided. Because one thing doesn't just do it if somebody has that significant of a need. Absolutely. And and even one thing doesn't do it when we look at neurotransmitters, hormones, you know, the body is always trying to be in what we call homeostasis or be in balance. So there's never one that's affected. By the time we see somebody, you know, everything's lit up like a Christmas tree because you've been trying to do it on your own and your body's intelligence has been trying to figure out of how to get this orchestrated, this, this, this optimization. And it hasn't worked. So it's never just one, you know, and it, it's great point. Great point. And when we talk about the, the struggles when somebody's detoxing from, they say, oh, they get that. They, you know, that's just their body giving them the message. No, it's the body trying to get to the state of homeostasis, getting, you right. know, um, right. they may learn a lesson from that. Yeah. But that's yeah. not the point. The body doesn't think that way. It's just I've got to get back to that, that my normal state, whatever that Correct. may be. Correct. Yeah. Before we finish up, is there anything you'd like our listeners to know? Um, I, I would really just like to share again, which I did earlier, that we're going to have the NASW course and the NADAC course, and people can learn more information. If anybody has questions, you can email staff at wiredforaddiction.com. Okay. You know, if you don't want to wait to take that course, by all means, let's set something up with your facility. Or, you know, if you're an individual listening to this yourself, don't feel like you have to wait for that. We'll, we travel, we do Zooms, we educate people all over because it always starts with education. And more information on the uh, company is available at the website, www.wiredforaddiction.com, correct? Correct, correct. And I did see that NADAC has an intro, last year did an introductory uh, webinar, PowerPoint on um, biomarkers and things. So they're starting to do the process. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Um, it's been my pleasure to talk. Uh, I certainly have to look up more because now my appetite is is whetted even more. You know, when I get to this point because everything that I was taught when I first came into the field is wrong. Right? Things change and you learn new new steps. So now for me, learning new things is is uh it, it saves me from screwing up. <laughs> yes, that's but, but is it, that's important. Isn't that the process? Yeah. Right. The process of innovation. If we see it's not everything we need it to be, keep on working until we innovate a better way to do that. You know, so you're offering that. Thank you so much for the work. That so you it's did also here. our ethical responsibility to look at new technology and to always focus on professional development. So thank you again. Yeah. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to once again thank Dr. Evelyn Higgins for sharing information on this continually growing technology to help individuals attain the life that they seek. We hope that it piques your curiosity and it impels you to learn more. We do appreciate all who listen. Thank you for spending a small part of your day with us. And we are always seeking sponsors to help offset the cost of production. Please contact us. If you would like to get your message out to individuals across the country in a fully tax deductible manner, I might add. Until next time, everybody. 